Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. On this week's pod, we check in on the capital markets. Paul Stoffels finds a new home back home. Caliph's nomination, is it on the rocks? And Scott Gottlieb helps us to make a very pleasant debut for our new show, The BioCentury Show. I keep wanting to say TV show, but my 12-year-old son tells me I have to call it a web-sclusive. So I think that kind of sounds sexier. Uh, We'll also have our emerging company spotlight. But first, BioCentury this week is brought to you by ICON, a leading clinical research organization powered by healthcare intelligence. ICON advances clinical research by providing outsourced services to pharma, biotech, and other healthcare organizations. ICON offers a flexible partnership model for biotech starting in the preclinical phase through real-world studies and into commercialization. Learn more at iconplc.com biotech. Stephen, thanks for joining us. I know it's well into your evening there in the mighty UK. It's a very rocky time for the capital markets. Uh, I know in December, early January, you spent a lot of time talking to bankers and investors about how they thought the year would begin. What are you hearing? What do you make of what's going on? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, January has been painful. You know, last year, everyone was complaining about how bad the markets were. For instance, the XBI was down, I think it finished the year close to about 20% for the whole year. And we've pretty much done that again in the month of January. (laughs) I think it was down as of the close of last week, it was down about 18%. And I think people are just waiting. They're like, geez, where's this bottom going to come? It's got to come at some point. If you look at the XBI where it's priced at, where it's still about maybe $20 off where the bottom was in March, 2020. So you could argue that there still could be more room to run. But if you look at the markets today, you know, nearly a 5% bounce for the XBI. So I know I've seen on Twitter already, there are some people that are hoping, hoping kind of crossing their fingers that we might've already maybe hit a bottom here. So a couple of things here, Stephen. We talked for a long time last year and the year before and whatever about how money was free. Like a lot of companies got a lot of money in this time. Um, Can we expect that there's just a lot of companies who can ride this out? How bad is it and who's it bad for? Yeah, I think that is probably where this market differs from maybe other times where we've had major downturns, even though I guess even if you look at like 2016, where there was a pretty large downturn, you'd had a a relatively a lot of follow-ons raised that year, but obviously nothing like we've seen the past two years. So um, I think the last time we did the cash analysis showed that there was more than 50% of biotechs that had two years cash. So if this is a relatively short-term downturn, you know, just for the next couple weeks, even months, uh, there should be plenty of companies that, that could just ride this out. As you say, I, you know, I think it was only a very small number of companies that were really in dire need of cash. So from that perspective, I think the, the sector is much healthier to weather this sort of a downturn than they maybe were in, in times past. 
I mean, and that's always been the, the, the reason, right? It's like, even if you didn't need money, why would you go and raise money in those markets? And, you yeah. know, the answer always was when they're passing out hors d'oeuvres, eat, you know, it's <laughs> coming that's later. Yep. So, yep. But, so, uh, but that's maybe the privileged position that companies maybe find themselves in now is that the reason why we haven't seen barely any follow-ons is because, you know, if you don't have to eat at a 40% discount to what you think your real value is, why, why would you? You know, if you have the optionality to wait, uh, you know, they will. And I think that's, you know, that's what we were hearing from the bankers is that a lot of companies are, they're not going to do deals unless they do it on the back of a catalyst that actually gets rewarded for some value. Well, I know you're going to carry on following this, Stephen. We've got a bunch of data things lined up looking at various aspects of the market, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure you're out and about talking to investors <laughs> and companies right left and center. Yeah, no, we'll uh, we'll stay on top of this because I know uh, there's been a lot of complaining and pain out there similar to uh, some people that suffered some pretty nasty losses in the NFL playoffs this weekend. So um, similar to we that. We had to go but... there, didn't we? We had to go there. <laughs> right. All right. Stocks have been sliding, as you said, Stephen, one of those among the many companies that have had a tough few months, uh, Galapagos. In the past year, their stock's down about 35%. They had multiple setbacks in the clinic, and that all occurred a few years after they had this very, very splashy deal with Gilead that you wrote about I forget the year now. Maybe 2019. Yep. 2019. Yeah. There you go. Yep. And so now we have the prodigal son, Paul Stoffels, returning to Belgium, and he is taking over the reins at Galapagos. He, of course, for those who don't know Paul Stoffels, there may be one listener out there who doesn't. He is the man who was behind a lot of the innovation at J&J for the past two decades. He announced his retirement as head of R&D and CSO a few months back. And really out of the blue, um, Galapagos announced that they had hired him. And, you know, we joked a few months ago about John Mariganore. That's kind of the CEO you want to be that when you announce your retirement, your stock falls 15%. Um, Obviously never pleasant, but that shows what a leader he was. And here we have Stoffels joining Galapagos, and I think the stock gained 20, 25% the next day. Steven, is this a turnaround story? What does Stoffels need to do to inject some life in Galapagos, a company that I believe he was involved with yep. way back in the day? Is that is yeah. that correct? Yeah, that's right. I think he was around there right when Ono van der Stoep was, just was starting it up. I, I, I just think, you know, he's stepping into a situation that clearly is a challenging one. I mean, Galapagos is right now, as you mentioned, it had this $5 billion deal that if there was ever really a transformative deal, I think this was one that you can, without being too hyperbolic about it, say was a transformative deal in 2019. But since then, they just had, unfortunately, setback after setback. They have this sort of highly touted Toledo program that that, that they were really hoping would be a, a major sort of shift in innovation for autoimmune and inflammatory diseases that so far has been quite disappointing. It's a SIC23 inhibitor that had some disappointing data last year. 
they had a couple of phase three failures for programs that were, you know, kind of being highly touted as ones that Gilead would be able to move forward with. And so really Galapagos finds itself in a situation where it, it's actually trading over a billion dollars below its cash position right now. So not only are investors not putting any value in the pipeline or their approved product, uh, Jacelka Filgotnib, uh, but they're actually putting a discount on sort of, you know, essentially putting a discount on their thinking around how Galapagos is going to be able to spend that money going forward. So yeah, the bump is maybe a sign of investors maybe thinking that, you know, fortunes could change if Paul can kind of turn this around and make better use of this huge treasure chest of cash that they have. But so far, unfortunately, it's been two years of pain for them. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Just a word or two about Paul Stoffels himself. As you pointed out, Jeff, he's been for a couple of decades at least with J&J. He's really been a major driver towards global health initiatives. He has driven a lot of J&J's activities around the world, as you say, led their R&D. I think none of us, I mean, he's still a young man, but you know, given where he was in his career, I'm not sure any of us saw this move. We wouldn't have been surprised to sort of see him maybe be on boards or something. So that said, as you pointed out, this is going home for him. He is really, he's a global man, but he's also very much a Belgian. I've talked with him about this from time to time. And, you know, I, I think it's very interesting. We we have seen a fair number of people leave, you know, high positions in big pharma and go and either head up or head R&D at some of the smaller companies. So it sort of fits in that model that said, I mean, running J&J and what he's been doing is a very, very different task from what he'll be doing at Galapagos. It would be great if he could do a turnaround story for them. Part of me feels that this is, as you say, got to be a sort of partly emotional driven, let's go back to my roots and, you know, Belgium and this company in particular. So it'd be interesting to see how it plays out. But it it certainly wasn't something many of us sort of expected to hear from uh, Paul Stoffels. I think it's great for European biotechs, you know, to have someone totally of this caliber, you know, coming back because, you know, just two years ago, I mean, we were talking about Galapagos as Simone, your favorite word, you know, as a European bellwether. And they've kind of very much fallen away from that thread, you know, when we, but, you know, we'd been talking for a while about how Europe needed to build the stable of growing mid-cap public biotech companies that were doing really well. And I think we all sort of, viewed Galapagos as kind of very much fitting into that thread. I mean, they were, you know, getting up to 12, maybe even $15 billion company at one point. And now they're back well below, like I said, you know, right, right around $4 billion. So yeah, it's it's good to see someone of his caliber and his sort of, you know, his cachet sort of stepping in and, and taking over and hopefully, you know, hopefully bringing them back to hopefully fill that role again. All right. Obviously one we'll be following in the weeks and months and years ahead, I suppose. We shall see how it goes. I'd like to turn to Washington again, and I'm really hoping this is the last time I ask you this, Steve. Is Robert Califf going to be voted on in the Senate at some point? Yeah, he's going to be voted on in the Senate uh, as soon as the Democratic leadership is sure that they've got enough votes to get him through. Everything comes down to corralling and, and counting votes. The Biden administration needs to offset every Democratic no with the Republican yes. Five Democrats have said they're going to vote against the nomination. Four Republicans have said they'll vote in favor. I think there's several things that have happened in the last couple of days to shore up his support, both on the right and the left. 
the Wall Street Journal endorsed him today. That could give Republicans courage to vote for Califf. Elizabeth Warren announced her support in exchange for Califf pledging that he won't work for a biopharma company for four years after leaving FDA. That's going to help with the Democrats. In the end, I, I think Califf's going to be confirmed. It's interesting, the most adamant um, opponents right now are the pro-life right, people who are upset with FDA's policies on uh, abortion drugs, though I think that that's somewhat unfair to Califf, both because it doesn't really have much to do with him and also because that's not really an FDA issue. FDA's job is to determine whether these drugs are safe and effective and to determine how they can be used safe and effectively. They're not in charge of setting policies on those issues of, of whether abortion drugs should be accessible or not. And the other industry that's really opposing him is the vaping industry, who thinks that he's going to crack down on vaping in ways that's going to hurt their um, financial interests. All right. Well, from one FDA commissioner to another, last week we kicked off the BioCentury show. It's our 30-minute in-depth conversation with life sciences leaders. And Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, was our debut guest. And he had a few things to say about CMS, Adjuhelm, and more. Steve, did you have fun talking to Scott? Oh, yeah. It's always fun um, talking to Scott. He had a lot of interesting things to say. I encourage everybody, of course, to listen to and watch the show. I think there are two topics that I would highlight. One was Adjuhelm, of course. And on that, he, he sparked a, a lively debate on social media by dis- asserting that the reasons that CMS gave for restricting coverage set a precedent both for second-guessing FDA's judgments on safety and efficacy and for using accelerated approval as a basis for restricting or denying coverage. There are people who applauded CMS's decision and think that Scott Gottlieb was wrong on uh, both of those counts. There were some who applauded uh, CMS's decision and think that he's right on both of those counts. So that it's an interesting debate. On the pandemic, he blasted CDC, which isn't new. He wrote a book about that, uh, a book about the pandemic, which is devoted in large part to chronicling the, the flaws and uh, failures of the CDC. Um, what I think is important about the way that he talked about it on the show and, and also in his book is that he took it from the realm of personalities into policy. He acknowledges the damage that Trump did, though he doesn't dwell on it. But he makes a point that many people thought that Trump was the only problem and getting rid of him was all that was needed to put the pandemic response on a sound footing. This has turned out to be wrong. Uh, The CDC is arguably is flailing now. It's sending confusing public health messages, failing to collect basic data that policymakers need and more. And Gottlieb's point is that this is baked into the culture at CDC and isn't the fault of a particular president or of the CDC director. And he made another point that I thought was really important. He said that the damage that's been done to the public's confidence in public health institutions is durable. That's the word that he used, durable. Um, The pushback we're seeing today on masks and COVID vaccine mandates is expanding into a broader repudiation of basic public health measures like childhood vaccine requirements. And if this continues, we're all going to suffer from it. Yeah, I think, Scott, obviously, he's always very interesting to listen to. Just to pick up on a couple of things you said, Steve. 
So he categorically said that he wasn't going to um, talk about whether he agreed or disagreed with the Adjuhelm decision itself. And he also said that he wasn't really, he was sort of upfront about being ex-FDA and not really going to criticize FDA. And I think a lot of people listening think that FDA could get some criticism over that whole issue. But he took it out of that arena and just talked about CMS's relationship, regardless of whether you agree with it or not. So he sort of took two agencies and not a third to task. You know, he took CMS to task and he took CDC to task. I think you're right. Certainly with CDC, there's been a lot of criticisms over the pandemic. And generally what we are seeing, and I've heard, you know, Rob Califf has also recently talked about a lot of um, concern over the lack of public trust in these public health agencies. I, I, I don't know whether that concern just ends up being a lot of people saying how concerned they are or whether you think there's any realistic chance that they will reconfigure how they operate. Uh, one point in particular, for example, is the way vaccines, for example, in a public health emergency, where that, that approval process goes through CDC and ASIP and everything being very inefficient. Yeah, he did talk about that and he, and he suggested that it was a failure in the Trump administration, kind of a failure of imagination, I think, to conceive of a different pathway for approving vaccines, not for FDA approval, but for CDC's determination of the recommendations of uh, how they should be used and whether they should be used. And he pointed out that Israel conceived of a different way of doing it. At the beginning of the pandemic, they scrapped their process and came up with a, a new process. And he said the analogous concept in the United States would have been if FDA and CDC had come up with a joint process in which they had an advisory committee's kind of a joint advisory committee that would, what he said, conduct a workshop, you know, like a, a full day workshop on the issues around the EUAs for the vaccines. I, th I think that's an interesting idea. I also think that we've gotten beyond that now, the, the levels of um, skepticism and um, antagonism toward public health institutions, toward science, toward scientists, has gone beyond something that can be rectified by having a better process for considering the evidence. Something much more dramatic needs to happen, I think, to stem the progress we've got toward really, um, I don't know, going back to a, a kind of a dark age where there's no way for society to come to a consensus about scientific truth and the steps that government and citizens need to take together to protect us all from things like COVID or measles or, you know, other infectious diseases. I'm going to step back from the darkness, Steve, um, but we do hope you'll tune in to the BioCentury show. Like this podcast that you are listening to, the BioCentury show is an open access show. Every two weeks, we'll have a new edition, and you can learn more at thebiocenturyshow.com. That's where you can watch the show, or you can listen via your favorite podcast app. Quickly before we let you go, we want to tell you about a few emerging companies. We ran a trio of emerging company profiles last week. Stephen, 
Thank you very much. You wrote a pair while juggling all sorts of things. Both of the companies you wrote about, Salino and 1016, raised Series A rounds last week. 1016, they're targeting a dynamic genome to find driver mutations uh, in the hope of catching cancer earlier. Uh, Foresight and GV led a $40 million Series A for the company to help build a data platform. And Salino raised $80 million. They're a manufacturing company. And Leaps by Bayer, I believe, uh, jumped in to that one. Steven, uh, what did you learn about these companies? <clears throat> yeah, you're right. The Leaps by Bayer, who has been very busy, led that one. They've obviously, uh, Bayer itself has been getting into uh, cell and gene therapy, and they've they bought Blue Rock an IPS uh, cell company. And so maybe it wasn't too surprising to see Leaps leading the Salino Series A since they are essentially looking to automate the sort of the manufacturing and differentiation process for induced pluripotent stem cells, which have a very, you know, the, the standard way of doing now is very lots of manual handling, very long process, very expensive process. And so they're very much looking to cut that down and make it a much more streamlined sort of uh, you know, kind of trying to get iPSCs mainstream, essentially make them such that you can scale them for larger indications. And then the second one you mentioned, 1016 Bio, had, had a great conversation with the co-founder and CEO there, Mark Chow, who was previously uh, one of the co-founders of 47, uh, the CD47 company that Gilead acquired. And as you said, they are looking for mutations in somatic mosaicism in hemopoietic stem cells which are basically these early signals of disease. So basically they found these mutations that happen very early on and which some studies have shown correlates very strongly with patients later on developing disease. In some cases, you know, having a 95, maybe even a, nearly 100% chance of developing um, certain types of uh, leukemias or lymphomas. And so basically they're looking to try and get in very early and, and treat these mutations with the idea of being able to sort of intercept that disease progression. Stephen, you've got to tell everybody, as you know, because I hounded you during the editing of this. 1016. <laughs> where, does it, where does the number come from, apart from trying to make editors' life difficult? That's right. Well, other than maybe CEO Mark's affinity for having companies that are just made up of numbers. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, 1016 is uh, 10 to the 16th power, which I believe is one quadrillion, which represents the estimated number of um, divisions that uh, cells go through in the lifetime of your average human being. So you've got about a quadrillion cell divisions that go on with the idea that every time you have one of those divisions, one of these uh, somatic mosaicism mutations can be introduced. So there you go, 1016. Our third company is building on the research of Duke University GPCR pioneer Bob Lefkowitz. Septerna is the company. It launched with a $100 million Third Rock-led Series A round and a platform that modernizes GPCR drug discovery. Simone, I know you're familiar with Bob Lefkowitz's work. Yeah, you know, I started out in GPCRs. Actually, the way these receptors work was what? got me into pharmacology in the first place, even in my undergrad degree. And Bob Lefkowitz is just pretty much a legend in this field for various reasons and various Nobel Prizes. And there's been a problem for, for decades, literally, that this company is trying to solve. 
So, you know, at one time, about half of the drugs on the market targeted GPCRs. They really are involved in all kinds of cellular processes. But because these seven transmembrane proteins have a binding site inside the membrane, it's really been very, very difficult to recreate them in reliable systems, you know, in vitro systems with all the, you know, accessory proteins and components that allow you to probably interrogate them. And so this company, I mean, a couple have tried to do that recently. It was always very difficult to couldn't really crystallize these receptors and so on. And they made a lot of technology leaps in that area. And then this company, I believe, is creating a company out of a technology that they developed in order to research the receptors and then realize that actually they could use this in order to help them sort of create a pipeline of drugs, I suppose. They have a strategy that they call Native Complex, capital N, capital C, just another way of removing the receptor and from the detergents, purifying it and creating another sort of vesicle system to put that in. Other people have tried that. So we'll see if this one is substantially different, but it does have, you know, at least one banner name behind it. And certainly if it works, there's going to be a ton of uh, drugs that they can create using that system. And Bob Lefkowitz was awarded the 2012 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his work on GPCRs. And his fellow co-founders included Monash University professors Arthur Christopoulos, whose research has focused on allosteric modulation of GPCRs, and Patrick Sexton, who has expertise in structural biology and cryo E.M. Executive Director Lauren Martz wrote the piece, and that is up on our website, biocentury.com. And coming soon, we will have the Emerging Company Roundup for 2021. Uh, That should go live in the next couple of days. We'll also have a look back at last year's IPO class, as well as some of the legends lost last year um, in a look back, paying tribute to John Martin, Fred Frank, and some of the other pathfinders in the biopharma industry who got us to where we are today. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. K2O Connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 